Well, thank you guys for being here. Appreciate it. If you guys were here last month, Sam Rajkumar taught us from the book of Philippians chapters 3 and chapters 4, and his focus on his teaching was pursuing Christ. And that's our theme for this year's Men's Breakfast of 2023. And it's taken from Philippians 3.14. You guys should all have the verses in front of you. Um, and the, the verse says this, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the verses that follow say this, verse 15 says this, let those of us who are mature think this way. I think most of the men here are somewhat mature as believers or as in age, one of the two. And it says also this, and if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, as mature believers, we come here to fellowship and learn about God. And much of our learning is just reinforcing what we already know, because most of us already know what we're hearing. Um, and today I'm just going to reinforce the learning on keeping our minds on eternity. And most of you know R.C. Sproul, who started Ligonier Ministries. He's since passed. But for over 40 years, he wrote a recurring column in this magazine called Table Talk. And the title of that column was called, Right Now Counts Forever. Live your life with eternity in mind. Live your life with eternity in mind. And as Christians, we want our lives focused on eternity. Everything we think, say, and do in this life matters, not just for today, but for all of eternity. There's no such thing as a meaningless moment. Why? Because we're created in God's image. We are his workmanship. God is absolutely sovereign over the entire universe. And ultimately, he has a divine plan for each and every one of us here. But the objective of living with eternity on our minds is easy to say, but extremely difficult to do. Our goal as Christians is to follow Jesus Christ and continually reflect him in everything we do. But as sinful human beings, it's impossible to achieve. But that doesn't mean we should stop from trying to keep our eyes and our minds focused on eternity and living for the prize of the upward call of God. But fortunately, we do have some Christians in Christian history that we have some tremendous examples of men who lived and died with eternity on their minds. And there are two men in particular who I'm going to touch on briefly. The first one is Polycarp. Some of you know the story. I think it's worth repeating. I'm just going to touch the highlights of the story, but feel free to look the story up yourself on Polycarp or ask Dave Bolin after the breakfast because he knows a lot about him too. So Polycarp was born in the year 69 AD. <clears throat> It's believed that Polycarp was born in what is now called Izmir, Turkey. He was raised in a non-Christian house, and he was taken as a slave as a young boy. And then he was rescued in the city of Ephesus by a woman. Her name was Callisto. She cared for him, and she introduced him to the ways of Christ and Christianity. Polycarp was also known to be um, a disciple of the last living apostle, the Apostle John. Polycarp would eventually become the Bishop of Smyrna of Turkey for many years, and Polycarp lived to be 86 years old and was ultimately martyred. At the end of his life, he was subject to arrest by Roman officials. So the Christians during Polycarp's time, they were being told by the Romans that under the threat of death, they needed to renounce Christ and confess Caesar as Lord or offer incense to the emperor. And if they didn't do that, 
they would be tortured and executed, and it was basically attacked by wild animals in a public arena. So after a number of Christians had been killed, the crowds in the arena started chanting, we want the blood of Polycarp. And Polycarp was arrested and escorted to the local arena. And the proconsul that was there, he, he was basically in front of them. And when they brought him, they asked him, are you Polycarp? And he confirmed, yes, I am. And they said this, we want you to renounce Jesus Christ. And they tried to persuade him to renounce Christ. They said, swear by Caesar, repent. And he says, say away to these atheists. They thought Christians were atheists because they didn't believe in any of the gods, the Roman gods. So they called them atheists. So Polycarp was in the middle of the stadium, looks up solemnly, looks at all the people. He looks at the, all these lawless heathens, and he looks at them and basically waves his hands, groans, looks up to heaven, and he says, away with these atheists. But when the proconsul pro continued to press Polycarp, revile Christ, swear an oath to Caesar, he said this, four score and six years, that's 86 years, have I been his servant, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So the soldiers then grabbed him to nail him and spike him to a, to a pole. But Polycarp stopped them and he said, Leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security of the nails you desire. He prayed out loud. The fire was lit. And the chronicle of the, of the martyrdom said this, It wasn't as burning flesh. It was as bread baking or as gold and silver refined in a furnace. The account concludes by saying this, Polycarp's death was remembered by everyone. And even the heathens talk about him in every place. Now that is a man who lived with eternity in mind. The second man I want to talk about lived during, the, during 160 to 224 AD. His name is Tertullian of Carthage. And there's a well-known quote associated with Tertullian. And the quote goes as follows. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I did a little digging and found that it's a slight paraphrase of the original quote, which was taken from actually a much longer reply. And this is Tertullian speaking in front of a group of governors who were also killing and persecuting Christians at the time. And this is what Tertullian said to them. Go on, good governors. The mob will think you all the better if you sacrifice Christians to them. Crucify, torture, condemn, destroy us. Your injustice is the proof of our innocence. For that reason, God allows us to suffer these things. Just recently, you condemned a Christian woman to the brothel rather than to wild beasts. You acknowledge that stain upon chastity is reckoned among us a more dreadful punishment than death. Your cruelties, though each of them more elaborate than the last, do not profit you. They serve rather as an attraction to our sect. The more you mow us down, the greater our numbers become. Our blood is the seed from which new Christians spring. That's another excellent example of someone living with eternity in mind. And that is our introduction for today's lesson. So let me pray before I read some scripture. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, and we ask you that you would help us to live with eternity in mind. Help us to love you with all our heart, all our mind, and all our soul. Give us the strength to follow you, even to death. But more importantly, give us the boldness to live for you. Amen. Okay, so now if you open your Bibles or if you have the, the scriptures, we're going to focus today on John chapter 12, 
verses 20 through 26. This is the text we'll be covering, and we'll be focusing specifically on 23 through 26. This text occurs during the week of Passover, and Jesus and his disciples are together, and this is just hours before going to the cross. So needless to say, Jesus is our ultimate example of someone who lived with eternity in mind. So I'm going to read the scriptures now, John 12, 20 through 26. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These people then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and were making a request of him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. But Jesus answered them by saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The one who loves his life loses it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So now let's look at verse 23 specifically. Let's see how Jesus responds to Philip and Andrew's questions about the Greeks wanting to see him. He says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He doesn't answer their question. He says, The hour has come. Note, he doesn't say the month. He doesn't say the week. doesn't say the day. He says, The hour. This is the hour that God had preordained for Jesus to begin the process of his ultimate glorification, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus knows the time. He is the creator of time. It is the time, the hour, for him to be glorified by going to the cross. It is the precise hour of the beginning of his sufferings. God the Father predetermined this exact hour for Jesus to prepare himself to have to leave earth. It's that hour. The hour has been arranged by the Father, and it parallels the way Jesus entered the earth, as it says in Galatians. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, under the law. Jesus came into the world and entered human time at the exact moment that had been determined by God. And he's now reaching the climactic moment of exiting human time and beginning the process of exalting himself into glorification by leaving this earth. This is a divine timetable. And Jesus is fully aware of what's coming. He told us as much in John 3. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who has descended from heaven. The Son of Man, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes on him may have eternal life. And even a bit later in John, it says this, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people unto myself. The hour is at hand for Jesus to be lifted up upon the cross. The Son of Man will be glorified by his death, burial, resurrection. And furthermore, Jesus will be glorified by his perfect submission and obedience to God the Father. Now let's move on to verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus starts off by saying, truly, truly, stop right there. 
He only uses that saying, truly, truly, 25 times in the New Testament, and all of it is in the book of John. And R.C. Sproul said this about that, truly, truly, the phrase, whenever we read in Scripture that our Lord is giving us a statement prefaced by the double amen, which is what truly means translated in the Greek, it's time to pay close attention and to be ready to give our response with a double amen to it. So truly, truly is used to emphasize something extremely important is coming. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus uses an easy to understand agricultural analysis, an example. Anyone at that time during Jesus' time understood what he was saying? We today understand what he's saying. The NIV says it this way. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is speaking about himself and predicting his ultimate death. His pathway to glory is through his death. His goal is to die, and he does so willingly. As it says in John, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one takes it away from me, but from myself I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. The path forward for Jesus is the cross, and death will be his ultimate glory. He must die like a grain of wheat. Let's look at the second half of the verse. It says, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. When Jesus dies, it says he will bear much fruit or produce many seeds. And those who believe in Jesus for eternity, we are his eternal seed. We are the fruit that he's talking about. As you know, he used this example in, uh, in John about the vine. I am the true vine and my father's the vine dresser from each branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And each branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Christians are the branches connected to Jesus and we need to produce fruit. The fruit Jesus desires is for us to imitate him. Imitate him in his dying and produce fruit. Jesus wants us to fall to the ground and die together with him. As Paul said, and I think he probably said this fairly forcefully, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, and who loved me and gave himself for me. We are intertwined with Jesus, and we are to live and die for him. Or as Paul says even more plainly in Philippians, Paul said, for, to, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is another example of keeping eternity in mind and focus. As Christians, we should be initiating, excuse me, imitating Christ by ourselves every day, daily crucifying ourselves. As imitators of Christ, we shouldn't fear death. Our natural life is not the end of our Christian life. It's just the beginning. Colossians says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are already dead and hidden with God in Christ. Everyone dies, but we know those who believe in Jesus will be raised with him and receive a new resurrected body. And Jesus has overcome death, so we don't have to worry about it. As it says in Romans, if we live... We live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. 
So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. As Christians, we, are, we possess eternal life because of who we are in Christ. We are his seed. We have been raised with Christ in eternity. And the Apostle Paul was speaking to the Corinthians about the resurrection, and he used a seed analogy also in his talk when he said the, body, the resurrection of the body. He said this, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps a wheat or something else. Paul is using a metaphor to explain the seed being planted and dying. And he uses this, the outward body of the seed, the sheath, the sheath is death. It dies. The outside dies, but the inside grows. It's the new body that comes from the death of plant. What he's saying is death produces life. This is like us spiritually, each one of us, when we're dead in our trespasses and sins and we became Christians. It says, therefore, if anyone was in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. So the old self, the unregenerated man, our outer body, our shell has died. And our new self, our internal inside body, the regenerated man, has come to life. We die physically, Paul says, he goes on to say. But when we die, he says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body and is raised imperishable. Eventually, we will all be imperishable as Christians. So let's move on. Uh, Verse 25. The one who loves his life loses it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it. We are told to hate our life in this world. Why? Because if we're followers of Jesus, we are to pursue the things of heaven. John, uh, 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh the, and the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body and you live. Galatians 5.24, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We are to yearn for the things of heaven and eternity. And Jesus emphasizes that point in uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. Or Mark chapter uh, 8, verses 34 through 37. He said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? There is nothing we can give for our souls. No value in this world can be used to pay for our eternal souls. No worldly possessions, no human intellect, no amount of wealth, no amount of political power. None of that can save you. And as the writer of Ecclesiastes said, it is all vanity and chasing after the wind. In John, uh, 1 John 2, 17, it says, The world is passing away and also its lusts. 
but the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. And you might now might be saying, well, man, it's hard to keep your eyes on eternity. It's tough to live that way. But you're right. It's not easy. But remember what Paul also told us in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are, in, are eternal. In order to do this, we need to ask God to help us with his supernatural power, help us to detest the world, help us give us the desire to serve him and not the world, help us to become indifferent to the trifling concerns of this life. Let's move on to verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The first part of 26 says this. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. As Christians, we should have the desire to serve Jesus. If we then serve Jesus, we are required to also follow Jesus. Christianity is not a spectator sport. We are to be doers of the word and live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Jesus wants us to actively follow him. Jesus showed us his active love by going to the cross. He didn't give us lip service, and he, and he showed us that while we were yet sinners, he still loved us and died for us. And he wants us to follow him actively in our lives and endure a path sometimes of suffering and pain. The path of being ridiculed, the path of being spit on by guards, the path of walking the Via Della Rosa, the path of walking to, up to Golgotha, the path of dying on a cross. Our road, the road, it requires suffering and serving. In Mark 10.45 it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve and ransom his life. Eternity and following Jesus, and Luke tells us this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There are serious costs of following Jesus, but the good news is this, that the eventual rewards are 1,000, 10,000, infinity thousand times greater and much more worth it. Let's move on to the middle part of verse 26. And where I am, my servant will be also. If you become a servant of Jesus, you will get to spend the rest of eternity with Jesus. Jesus said he'd go to prepare a place for us. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Or in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, when you, excuse me, Life appears when you also will appear with him in glory. We will appear with Christ in glory. What is glory like? Everyone would like to know. It is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. What is glory like? It's unimaginable. We can't imagine it. So bear with me just a few more minutes. Let's move on to the final part of verse 26. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you serve and follow Jesus on this earth, you'll not regret it. You'll receive eternal life. You'll get eternal rewards in heaven. You'll be able to see fellow Christians who have passed on. 
and you will be in glory with God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, and you will forever be able to plumb the riches and the understanding of God and his eternal love. At the end of verse 26, it says this, the Father will honor him. The God of the entire universe, the creator of the universe will honor you. Hopefully, you're all looking forward to God honoring you by hearing these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. In closing, I want to summarize this lesson with what John Piper wrote about this passage. He said, in this passage, there are four hard things and four glorious things. The four hard things. One, you must die. Dying is hard. Two, you must hate your life in this world. People love their lives. You have to hate your life. Three, we must follow Jesus on his road to Calvary. Four, we must become servants. No one wants to be a servant. That's hard. All four of those are hard. The Christian life is hard. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. However, it's also glorious. And glory easily outweighs the hard. Like Paul says, I count everything a loss for the surpassing knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. The four glorious things in the passage. One, you will bear fruit, much fruit. Two, you will receive eternal life. Three, you will join Jesus in heaven. And four, you will be rewarded and honored by the Father. So with every lesson, someone said, if you have a lesson, you need an application. So this is our application for today. Ask yourself these questions. Is there something in my life that God is calling me to die for or die to in order to experience more fully my position with Christ or in Christ? Is there anything I'm striving against in my very nature as a Christian to keep alive that God would like me to put to death? Are there any weaknesses in me as a father, as a husband, as a son, or as a witness for Christ that needs to die in me? Or some old habit or some secret sin, some root of pride, some fear of looking silly, some desperate need for approval, some desire for social wealth or social status. I'll leave you with these final words of a missionary who was martyred, Jim Elliott, who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Keep your eye and mind on eternity. Thank you very much.